Are you feeling less restriction after weight loss surgery than you think you should feel? Does it vary with exercise or how hard you work out? Is this a big deal? Is it your surgery? Your diet? What is it? Well, don't go anywhere, and let's talk about this feeling of less restriction. Get ready for the holidays and New Year. ProCare has a new multivitamin soft chew that comes with three delicious fruit flavors. With flexible dosing, you can accommodate your whole family's vitamin needs, and it even includes iron. Paired with calcium chews and our new protein powder. Visit ProCareNow.com and use code SUSAN10 to save 10%. Hi, I'm registered dietitian, nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell, ex-radio dietitian turned podcaster. You're listening to the Bariatric Surgery Success Podcast, episode number 120. Today, let's cut through all the health hype. Let's get right to that accurate nutrition information that you want, simple strategies that work. I want you to feel well every day. Get out there. Do the things that are calling your name. That's why I do the podcast. It's for you, and I'm so glad you're listening. Today, I want to give a shout out to Chef Henry, who said, I listen to a lot of podcasts, but this is always the one I look forward to. Dr. Susan Mitchell provides a great service to the community with lots of information and support. Also, her soothing way of communicating with the audience and her awesome guests are definitely a breath of fresh air. Well, Chef Henry, I'm happy to hear that I've brought you some fresh air. And I hopefully, I hope this is true for everyone else as well. You know, there's so much misinformation out there and every day you have to wade through it. I'm glad to deliver information you can count on to be accurate. And speaking of accurate and information, joining me today are your go-to bariatric dietitians, Isabel and Gail. Isabel Maples is a bariatric coordinator at UVA Health in Haymarket, Virginia. Gail Smith is the bariatric dietitian at the Weight Loss and Bariatric Surgery Institute in Orlando, Florida. You can find both Isabel's and Gail's contact information in the show notes. Hello, Isabel. Hello, Gail. Hey, Susan. Great to be here. Well, you know, the Facebook group, you guys are in there a lot as well. It's really supportive of each other. And there is so much discussion. Just recently, one of the questions asked was this, do you feel your pouch has less restriction on days you train especially hard? Is it hunger that makes you feel less restriction? What's going on? Okay, Gail, Isabel, from a medical nutrition therapy standpoint, and Isabel, I know you'll explain what that is in just a minute. Let's dig into whether this idea of less restriction is important or not, especially today with the various surgeries. You know, I keep going back to the adjustable band and restriction and how there was such a focus on that. And this surgery has almost been replaced by the gastric sleeve and gastric bypass, other procedures. So you don't hear as much about restriction being all important and achieving that overall improved health and weight loss. Gail, would you first explain what restriction is and then whether you're concerned about it or not? Yeah, sure, Susan. Most patients will have and report actually a tighter restriction initially with being able to eat only two to three ounces or less the first few weeks after surgery. This restriction is caused from the smaller stomach size. 
and it lessens over time. So most patients can eat about three to even six ounces of food a few months, weeks, years out. So let me jump in right here. I want to ask that question because I know someone's thinking it lessens over time. So that's a normal thing, right? It's what you want to see and you want the pouch to be able to be comfortable at a certain amount of food down the road, right? Right, exactly. So that you can eat a little bit more than in the beginning, but we still don't want you to sit down and have seconds and thirds, you know, that type of thing and stretch your stomach. We want you to eat enough to feel comfortable and be done and still eat your three to four. Maybe some people are still eating like the gastric bypass five to six small meals a day. Okay. So do you get then concerned about restriction based on the surgical procedure or based on something else? Like sometimes there can be a problem, a narrowing, a stricture. Let's, let's differentiate between that for people of where there's a medical concern versus more of this is what's happening because you had surgery. Exactly. You see the stricture usually early on after surgery, but it has occurred later as well, a month or two down the road. And what happens is it narrows in there. The stricture doesn't allow like solid pieces of food. Uh, It's usually more of a liquid or a very well-chewed liquid that can get through. And that patients have trouble with that because they're tired of eating the same foods all the time. Plus it hurts or they may be throwing up. So they come back to us and we do a procedure to try to widen that or further surgery if necessary. So the biggest concern though, as time passes and they don't have that stricture, but perhaps they have the normal stomach that's smaller now, the biggest concern as time passes is that patients start to eat more food and therefore more calories. And maybe it's more of the wrong type types of higher calorie fried or sugary foods, especially, Susan, if they're not exercising to burn those extra food calories. You know, I'm thinking about something Isabella said many times on the podcast, and that is that this initial period after surgery is such a good time to either reinforce positive habits or to learn new habits with nutrition so that as the time passes, you don't go back or you have less chance of going back to these high calorie fried sugary foods that get you in trouble. Yes, uh, that is one of my favorite topics. And I feel like I say it so much. I'm almost, you know, like a broken record. (laughs) That I remember, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, So let me talk about that. I mean, I really do want my patients to take advantage of that low hunger level after surgery, not just to lose the weight initially, but also to be able to figure out where's my stopping point? How much do I need to eat to be comfortable physically and psychologically? And does that amount change when my energy needs change, just like the support group question about somebody doing a more intense exercise regime and how do they fuel that? So, so I can talk more about that, but, but, um, you know, to me, the, the real main reasons that, um, the, the ways to figure out how much to eat are either calories, portion sizes, and fullness. And I have several reasons why I like to focus on the fullness first. As And part of it is because that's the one I feel like patients aren't as good at. And this is an opportune time to take advantage of it because the hunger level is low. And they're probably better at portion size and calories because they've done that on diet after diet. 
Yeah, you know, and I, I agree with that because think about, and I'll just speak from that U.S. point of view, but most of the time as we grow up, uh, listening to when you are full and you have had enough is not something, unfortunately, that we teach. It's mm-hmm. more, uh, to me, we are a society of hurry up and eat. I've got to be somewhere else. That's the next patient. It's the next this, my next class, my next whatever it happens to be. Or I'm watching a show and I'm eating mindlessly, not listening to those cues. So I want to tie in, Isabel, before I move forward, I'm thinking about the difference. And it helps people to know, I think, from medical nutrition therapy, which is what we as dietitians practice, uh, versus uh, sometimes the general education. So from a medical nutrition therapy, which you might want to explain, Mm -hmm. uh, what is it you want someone to know about that feeling of less restriction? All right. So what is medical nutrition therapy first? I mean, what are dietitians talking about? It's a process where dietitians individualized food strategies to treat disease or conditions. I think of it as manipulate meals to manage medical conditions. It's different than generic nutrition education. Oh, this is what people should do to stay healthier. You know, that's more designed for the general public. This is specific to how do you treat heart disease? How do you treat somebody going through cancer therapy? How do you treat in this case, obesity and weight weight related conditions, and so right. So and, you know, the I'm, reason that I wanted you to bring that up and to explain that is that I think so many times um, we have an idea that if you did it, it should be the same for me. That we're all the same, and that okay, if it worked for you, it'll work for me. And what we know from practicing medical nutrition therapy for years is that it isn't that way. That you're not just a one size fits all that we are very much individualized. And that's why I like to dig into these questions more so that you guys listening, you're going, Oh, that makes sense for me. That might not be me. Well, this might be Mm -hmm. me, but it's very Mm -hmm. individual. So go ahead with what you were saying about your science behind your suggestions and those feelings of restriction. Yeah. So medical nutrition therapy is not based on like food traditions. It's um, not based on food training. It really is. What does the science say? What are dietitians doing to translate all that scientific evidence into meals and snacks and beverages that we're going to eat and drink every day? And in order to manage that medical condition. Um, and that's really what I'm saying is there's science behind our suggestions. Uh, right. And especially tied to uh, obesity and these procedures of bariatric surgery. And so let me go back to those feelings of restriction because I didn't answer that. Yeah. Yes, so please. a big part of the reason that weight loss surgery works is the restriction. And it comes from both the stomach physically being smaller, like um, Gail was saying, but also the hormonal changes that lower the hunger hormones, that increase the fullness hormones, and it allows for weight loss. But the challenge is that the restriction can also be an obstacle to good nutrition, particularly if there's also strictures and stuff like that. But just even for anybody, that challenge is how do you eat enough but not too much? So in other words, the restriction could be a plus 
and a minus. And luckily, that's where dietitians come in to help. That's what we do to help patients implement some changes in what, when, and where eating and drinking occurs to better manage the healing process initially, the restriction, and the potential for not getting enough vitamins, minerals, and other nutrition, and of course, for comfort. And especially because we know, excuse me, that with time, the brain, the interaction with the gut and those hormones do change and the hormone levels do change again. So you really have to or want to, the desirable thing is get in place from the very beginning, these very positive eating habits and understanding what is happening to the body and why so that it goes on to be a long-term success. And Gail, that kind of ties into where I want to go there's so much more at play here after surgery uh, than just uh, restriction. There's a lot that plays into restriction. And many people, I'm sure, have heard the word body weight set point or the set point therapy theory, which you can explain in a second. But I can remember over the years where we've always thought that the body wants to return to its original set, set point. And in many cases, that's true. But there's some new research out that's saying, you know what, that just might not be the case after surgery. So would you explain what set point is and what some of the new research is indicating and then how this would affect all of our clients and patients. Sure, Susan. The set point is really kind of interesting. It still is kind of a theory, though. But its theory is that your body, in simple terms, your body has this point of weight that it likes you at the best. And how that's affected by hormones, your genetics, the environment, it's still pretty strong. And they all work together to pull you back to that. So a lot of the patients that are probably listening today have been on diets, use medications or not medications, and exercise, and they can lose all this weight. But slowly over time, whether it's a week, a month, or year, they get back to that same old weight that they usually are at, plus 10 pounds or more or less. So now there is some research that has been ongoing with effects on how the set point might be altered with bariatric surgery. Aha. So studies have been done already in rodents, small animals, that there, and there is currently some human data that's being collected on how the reduction of your appetite with, from hormones can be affecting that set point and changing it actually to a lower level. But the mechanisms for all this are to be continued, more research needed, and really kind of unknown. But the neat part about that, let's say that that data does prove to be true, that the set point is altered by surgery. So if you have that and then you're able to work on your environmental factors, lifestyle factors, mm -hmm. and things like that, yeah. you can't change genetics, then altogether, that can start to make a pretty positive package. Yes, definitely. definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So. So, Isabel, lots of factors that affect fullness or that feeling of satiety or restriction, such as how far out from surge you are, where you're actually hungry or not, what the hormones are telling you. What do you actually teach when it comes to satiety or feeling fullness cues? How can you give us some hands-on ideas of, of what to watch for? All right. Um, one of my favorite topics, I just, again, feel like that's I'm like a broken record. But I really 
have my patients start to recognize, first of all, they almost always tell me that fullness feels different after surgery. So instead of feeling that down in the belly, they are feeling it maybe in their chest, some tightness in their chest. Um, maybe they're starting to get some air movement. I hear that one a lot from patients. They often don't recognize at the beginning. They like, oh yeah, I get that tightness when I'm starting to get full. But then maybe a month or two out, they're like, oh, I can tell the air movement now you're talking about. They have it right from day after surgery often because they'll tell me, but they don't recognize it. So what I mean by that is um, a burp, a hiccup, a hybrid of those. Um, some people tell me, one person tells me it's a lava lamp, like little bubbles. They don't necessarily come all the way up, but they can feel them moving around in there. And once I tell people that, they're like, oh yeah, I feel that. I mean, that gets it. You can <laughs> picture that, right? <laughs> yeah. Some people also tell me they get some symptoms like uh, they get a, a, a sneezing or a runny nose if they've overeaten or pain or discomfort in their back or their head. But mostly they can get that tightness or that air movement is what I mostly hear from people. So what I try to do is get them to recognize it. And that goes back to that mindfulness that you're talking about, Susan, where they sit down, focus on eating. At the beginning, logistically, they, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to eat too fast. They don't want to, um, they want to take some pauses in between from a comfort level. But if they're paying attention while they're doing that, they can start to recognize these cues that they've had enough. And so the, the comfort is one big reason they might actually listen to me. But what I really want them to do is, I mean, the body is designed. It's like this machine and it can tell us, it's got this internal cue to know how much we need to eat. And my dad was like this. I mean, my dad weighed the exact same thing within probably three pounds his whole life. And it's amazing to me. But people that have been on a diet for years or their lifetime, they are not going to trust that mechanism. They are not going to believe yeah, that yeah. they can eat what they want and the amount they want and it'll work. And so, but it really, it really is a mechanism that you have to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. And without, don't you think without paying attention, you can have that mechanism all day long, but if you're not like even noticing it, if it's working or not, or you're not aware. And I think in life now, you have to make a decision pretty much every day. I I, I mean, whether you've had surgery or not, so I'm just kind of giving that across the board here, you have to really think about, okay, it's time for a meal. Am I going to sit at the table? Is the TV going to be on? Am I reading a book? Am I looking at a device? You know, what is going on here? Because all these different things can distract or detract, detract from you being aware, don't you think? And I do know that, you know, your body not only are, yes, definitely, but not only are you maybe not trusting your body to do this, but also your body may not be trusting you because guess what? You've ignored hunger time after time when your body says it's time to eat because you're on a diet or you've overeaten because you've been on that diet and now you're ready to get off of it and you eat all those foods you're missing. Or maybe it's a way of coping with life or maybe you're not getting enough sleep. So you're, you know, you tend to eat more. Sure. Oh, absolutely. You do. Especially carbs. Yes. Or (laughs) (laughs) sometimes it's numbing, uncomfortable feelings. And that's another reason that people like to just sit out, sit down and just mindlessly eat because what they're trying to do is numb 
uncomfortable feelings sometimes. So what do you say to someone who says, but Isabel, if I've never uh, really paid attention to those cues and I, I don't know them now and I don't know when, when I'm full, can I really learn that now after oh, surgery? you can. And if you don't get it right, your body's going to scream at you and scream. And that's where that discomfort comes in. So if they start to recognize, well, I, I, I'm just having all this reflex, I'm having all this discomfort, and sometimes they'll come back to me and I'm like, hey, stop. You're, you know, you're, sometimes it is stricture and something physical like that, but sometimes it's just, you know, it's a different system. So it's harder to learn. So sometimes it really is that the person is overeaten without meaning to. I have so many people right. that tell me. Yeah, absolutely. Without meaning yeah. to. It's, and because think of the portions when you're eating out that you're served, you're served portions oh, yeah. for five or six people, right? So uh, let's just say then you don't have those cues yet, or they're just not as sharp as that you want them to be. You really, in the beginning then, want to pay attention to portion sizes and calories, either or, or both until they become such habit while you're working on learning that fullness, right? Then you have the benefit of all three of those things working in your face. And I have a lot of my patients that say they'll do that and they'll say, I'll measure my food out, put it on my plate. And there's always one of my patients just laughs. She said, there's always one, two, three or four bites left. And I think, yeah, it's four bites. I have another patient that says, I hate to waste it. It's not enough to say, mm -hmm. but my <laughs> patients time after time say it is not worth it. When I hit that fullness cue and I get that burp or that hiccup. I think one of the benefits of calories, counting calories in the beginning, macros, if you prefer that, portion sizes, is that there, there's going to come a time in life when you're when you are back out there, you're with friends, family, foods being served, and you don't want to pull out the scales, the measuring cups, these kinds of things. But if you've trained yourself, your eyeballs know, and you can recognize how much it is that you're supposed to be eating. And then your fullness cues, like what you were just saying, Isabel will tell you when to stop. Exactly. And, and <clears throat> I will tell you, this works best also within some discipline. And that's the why I'm also, my big broken record is also structuring meals. And whether it is, like um, Gail said, I mean, it meals and snacks, but not grazing, not skipping meals, but having regularly scheduled meals. So all of a sudden in between meals, when, especially as you get further out, you're thinking, yeah, I think I feel like a little something, or I'm going to grab a handful of this. Well, that grazing what you do instead of the, of doing it is saying, yeah, I can have that food if I want, but I'm going to wait until my next meal because that's how you get into the grazing instead of li really listening to your body. Right. And then you get into slider foods yes. and it becomes an, ug an ugly yes. picture. Okay. So Gail, now I want to get even more specific. I want to go back to the question about feeling less restriction on days when someone is training or working out especially hard. Nutrition for bariatric surgery is just like nutrition for other medical situations in that one size doesn't fit all. We just said that. In other words, we all have individual needs and nutrition therapy is very specific based on the research for what you're treating. Hard workouts definitely kick up hunger, which is going to kick up the needs for more calories, mac, you know, macros, depending on what you need. Let's talk about some guidelines. How do you 
because it's really a blend here, right, of a sports dietitian yes. and a bariatric dietitian. And the sports dietitians know all the macros and where people need to be eating, but all, not, may not necessarily be aware of all the little ins and outs of bariatric surgery. So how do you pull that information in, Gail, to individualize when people want to work out hard and train hard as they've moved forward and they're ready to do that? You know, Susan, this is a growing area, just totally a growing field of nutrition. And I think we do have to work together and individualize each patient's needs to what sport they're in, how active it's going to be, how, you know, rigorous it is. Um, I love to talk to other sports trainers, sports dietitians, just to find out, you know, where they're at with this. And we really need more research in this area. And usually the patient really cannot start working out hard until they're a few months out from surgery and still should take it really quite slow in the beginning just to make sure that they are eating the right things, the right amounts at the right times. And they do come back to me. I get, I have lots of conversations with patients. They send me all kinds of stuff, different beverages that their trainers want them to use. And the trainers, you're right. Some of them know a little bit more about bariatrics now because of all of our patients, but it's still crazy because some of your gastric bypass patients can't have all that sugar, right? And they're on a lot of high sugar things to get that carbohydrate they need. So we're working through all that stuff. We're trying to add the extra calories more in the protein and the complex carbohydrate choices, which are best. But it does depend on whether they're a marathoner or just a 5K or a 10K person. And it, it depends whether it's swimming or it's biking. I mean, we're all over the place. So we're learning more. And usually the uh, 4,000 calories may not be achievable. It may be more... <laughs> Yeah. like 2000 or 1400 right. to 1600 uh 2 years out and and it just really depends on their height weight age size too so we will individualize it we'll be strong on the protein we'll be strong on the carbs just like the 40 40 20% of your total calories for the macros the protein the carbs and then a little less on the fat but you still need the fat too but we, we, we won't get into a lot of the details here unless, Isabel, you want to add a little bit more on this. Well, yeah, what, but, I want, what I'd like you both, so let's just use the example then of somebody who has moved from regular workouts, you know, okay, it's a, a swim here, a walk there, here, that, and the other, but they're doing intense exercise that lasts more than an hour, maybe an hour and a half, maybe two. Let's talk a little bit about refueling after, maybe even fueling before. Uh, before, and either one of you can take this, both of you. When What kind of things do you want? Liquids before? Do you want protein before? Do you want carbs and protein before and after? Uh, you have feelings on that. And again, I do know this. Let me just say, it is going to be very different depending on the workout. It on what it is that you're doing, the sport that you are doing. It really is. And bottom line is the timing of meals and snacks often needs to be adjusted to the workout. Some people are going to work out first thing in the morning. Some people are going to work out in the middle of the day. Some people are going to work out later at night. So there's a lot of variables here. So we can't get into the specifics, but the type of activity will make a difference. And what I mean by that is, let's say it's a really intense exercise um, or an exercise like yoga that involves a lot of bending and stretching, it is not going to be comfortable if you've had a really 
you know, if you've had a regular meal on a full stomach, you're not going to be, right. you know, running for that. But D- downward dog and you yeah. are going to like one another. <laughs> yeah. But if you get into something like cycling or hiking or something like that, it can be done more comfortably with more food in the belly. So that'll make a difference. And then adjusting the, sn- the snack times before and after a workout. And what you're really looking for is how do you fuel yourself enough that you're going to feel good during that workout? Not enough that you're going to run out. I mean, not like avoiding eating because you want to be on an empty stomach and then you can't get through your workout because it's not enough fuel, you know, that. And yeah, yeah, hypoglycemia, other issues you run into. We don't want that. So, and, right. and so some frequent meals and snacks are a way to handle that. Just the logistics of it, not even be able to eat that much at one time and being comfortable when you do work out. The other thing is for somebody who's walking, you know, more than they were 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes at a time, but at a comfortable pace, they don't need a snack right after surgery. I mean, after, after a workout necessarily, but somebody who's working out hard, and feeling drained by the end of their hour or plus workout, their prob- the science shows that their body is in a position to refuel right then within an hour of yep. that workout. So Absolutely. if they can start getting the fluids back in, but also get a combination of protein and carbohydrates, um, not necessarily sugary things, because we know what that does, but some carbohydrates, um, fruit is a good, I mean, it could be, yeah, it could be a half a peanut butter sandwich with, with um, some banana in it. It could be a smoothie, for instance. Some people don't, they don't like that fullness of all that protein in their belly because protein stays in their belly longer right before a workout. It might be a lot, lot. So putting it a little further out, having a smaller meal can, can also, or a snack about two hours before, three hours, depending on people's comfort level and workouts. There, there's a lot of strategies that can help. Um, fuel before and after, but it doesn't have to be with a special gel or um, sugary food. Correct. It could be a smoothie with some fruit and yogurt, uh, for instance, because liquid things are going to empty out the stomach a little faster. So that might be more comfortable. It's always good to, I think, circle back with your dietitian as you're getting into harder workouts and different types of training and let them make recommendations. Should you be higher in carbs? Should you push more protein? Mm-hmm. What should, should you do them both together? What time? I know we've talked about a lot we've, uh, today, um, but before I leave, I always like to give you a chance to say, did, is there something you wanted to say or you thought of, uh, oh, this is a must know or this will help you? Um, I know that both of you are big on encouraging carbs because so many people think they can never have carbs again and carbs fuel our brain and our body and become so important in workouts. So as we wrap up, what do each of you want to leave us with? What, what I like to add, Susan, is that I really, this is my favorite part about working with a bariatric patient is seeing them go through this transition of changing their lifestyle in a more permanent way, meaning exercising, learning how to eat healthy. And probably I'd like to tell them and emphasize the importance of staying on their vitamin and mineral supplements and having that blood work done yearly, okay? Come and see us because we can see if you're having trouble with your exercise routine, you may be low iron or you may be low this or low that. So 
please remember that. Yes, it's not always the macros. It can also sometimes be other things that play a part, which is what you're looking at again from that science standpoint. Isabel? I would tell people don't hesitate to reach out to your bariatric dietitian for help fueling fitness. And whether you're working out more to feel good, to manage health, or to compete athletically, that dietitian at least is a starting point. If that person doesn't have the expertise to get you through a marathon, for instance, then that person can pull in another dietitian or ask to refer you to somebody else who's more of a sports dietitian. And maybe it takes the two to put the information together with both bariatric and sports dietetics. Because my goal is with both of you guys as well is to live a life you want to live where mm-hmm. you're, if you want to be out there getting exactly. to a half marathon, if you want to row, kayak, whatever it is, whatever it is yeah. I, I don't want it to be exercise where you go, oh boy, I got to do something yes. today. I want you to go, yay, hey, today I'm going to go, you know, ice skating or whatever it is that is your passion. And then we can figure out how to feed that passion, right? And, and make you do this be as best as you can be. So thank you to you both. Thank you for your time as always. Good information. Thanks, Susan. And remember, ask your questions. You are an individual. You are special and you're worth it. Bariatric Surgery Success with Dietitian Dr. Susan Mitchell is produced and owned by Practicalories, LLC. All rights reserved. Remember, the content provided on this podcast is for information purposes only and doesn't create a patient-provider relationship. It's intended to provide reference material and is not designed to provide medical advice. Please consult your healthcare provider regarding any medical issues you have relating to symptoms, conditions, diseases, diagnosis, treatments, and side effects. Podcast guests express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions, which do not necessarily reflect or agree with the host, Dr. Susan Mitchell, or Practicalories, LLC.